Our text of scripture for today's worship service comes from the Gospel of Luke, somehow fitting, having just returned from the Holy Land where we retrace the steps in the ministry of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke, beginning in Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee and then concluding in Jerusalem. So I invite you to listen to this familiar text of scripture, the parable of the prodigal son, or as those who are in our small groups are learning, the prodigal God. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? Here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quick, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on, and he replied, Your brother's come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen. For all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Will you join me in prayer? So, gracious God, we come this morning to hear your word. We ask that you would quiet within us any voice but your own, that we might not only hear your words, but we might be doers of your word as well. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was just shortly more than a week ago that our small group of travelers to the Holy Land of 17 people, 18 people, were making our way towards the entrance to the old city of Jerusalem through the Lion's Gate. It was Friday afternoon. It's a Sabbath day for the Muslim community. And worship had just ended up on the Dome of the Rock at the Alaska Mosque. Our guide, Eric, indicated that the Temple Mount can handle about 75,000 people. Several thousand of them were pouring out the Lion's Gate as we were trying to make our way in, pressed on all sides by this throng of people. Vendors had set up alongside the street selling fish and trinkets and various religious paraphernalia to the worshipers who were leaving the city as we were trying to make our way in. Our Israeli guide pushed through to some of the tables and asked for permission from one of the vendors, one of the Muslim vendors. He was denied. So we had to double back and our guide whispered in our ears that he was denied because he was Jewish. Finally, we made our way into the city to the site of the Bethesda Pools where the man who had waited for 38 years for a healing, Jesus finally healed, where that took place. The church beside the site is known as St. Anne's Church. It was built by Roman Catholics in honor of the mother of Mary. It was closed during the noon hour for noon prayers for the Muslim community. We were the first ones on the site after it reopened. And though this particular church, St. Anne's, is not known for its long history, it's one of the more newer churches built there, it is known for its acoustics. So we sing. We got into the space and we sang the doxology together. Before we entered the church, I'd asked if Cindy Jenkins would be willing to sing a solo. And she said, protested, I, I'm not prepared to sing anything. And I, I reminded her that just a week ago, here in the sanctuary, she sang at a memorial service, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. So after we sang the doxology, she sang Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It was the most beautiful, awe-inspiring moment for many of us of the entire trip. To hear her voice sing so effortlessly in that space and to hear it reverberate around so that even when her lips were closed, you could still hear her voice. It was beautiful. It was inspiring. We were all stunned when she finished. 
But then her husband, Scott, tried to capitalize on the situation and began taking up a collection. <laughs> we were all brought right back to reality. <laughs> that was just one of the remarkable moments we had on this trip. One of the real joys for me was the adventure of having my family on this trip. My wife, Lynn, joined me. And that was a blessing and a great joy for me. And my brother and his wife joined us on the trip, which brings me to our text about two brothers and the extravagant love of their father. The Bible is full of stories about brothers. It begins with Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his many brothers who sold him into slavery. Lots of movies and television bring stories of siblings to the big screen. You may remember the movie A River Runs Through It, about two brothers, sons of a Presbyterian minister in Montana. Perhaps you're Downton Abbey fans. Well, the relationship between Mary and Edith captures those similar dynamics of sibling rivalry from a feminine perspective. So stories about siblings are not uncommon. Now perhaps you're one of the more than 150 in the community who are reading The Prodigal God by Tim Keller during this season of Lent. You know that Tim Keller uses the story of the prodigal as a way of shedding light, particularly on the father of the story. And he sees this parable as a primer for Christian faith. In fact, he describes it as, as kind of like the place in a lake where you go out and the water is so clear you can see all the way to the bottom. The parable gives us that kind of insight into the center and the heart of the gospel of Christ. For Keller, the two brothers represent two basic ways to find happiness and fulfillment in life. There's the way of moral conformity, and there's the way of self-discovery. Each of us has a lens that colors how we see life. And it's kind of a paradigm by which we understand everything that we experience. Moral conformity or self-discovery. But according to Keller, both ways are insufficient. Just a couple of weeks ago, here in the sanctuary, we hosted the Presbytery of San Gabriel. And Steve Yamaguchi, who's from Fuller Seminary, preached on that particular occasion on this text, the parable of the prodigal God. And he reminded us that if Presbyterians have a namesake in the New Testament, our namesake is the elder brother. Presbyteros is a Greek word which means elder. And in Luke 15, that word is used in reference to the elder brother. Not a very flattering description of us. 
self-righteous party poopers, I would say. That's pretty much where we come in. Now, I was definitely the one in my family who took the avenue of self-discovery. I even ran away from home when I was 17 years old. And my brother, who joined us on this trip to the Holy Land, was not quite the moral conformist, but for the purpose of this illustration, I think he more closely resembles the older brother than I did, though he's actually my younger brother. And I am so grateful to be at this stage in life now where I'm able to enjoy my brother and perhaps compensate for some of the ways I tortured and tormented him in our earlier years. I absorbed a great deal of our family's emotional energy for a few years, which left my siblings to fend for themselves. And I can only imagine now, in reading this parable, what they must have felt about me and watching our parents' relentless effort to love and support me through those difficult years. Now, since we've all experienced families and understand the reality and the complexity of those relationships between parents and their children, siblings with one another, this parable speaks to each one of us. How do we understand this story about family dynamics in the first century? And what does it have to do with us? Well, it begins as a story of family estrangement with a division in the family that leads to distance and anger and resentment. And it ends with a less than complete resolution. A son requests his inheritance. The second son was entitled to about a third of the father's fortune under Jewish law. And at that time, it was customary to pass the family assets to the next generation before death. Sort of an estate plan that was handed over at the point when parents were growing increasingly incapable of managing their affairs. But this request came long before that development. This son wanted what was coming to him. Now. And he wanted life on his terms. It's an interesting phrase. He wanted what was coming to him. Of course, one of the several twists in the parable is that ultimately he doesn't get what's coming to him. After receiving his inheritance and losing it all in fast living, instead he receives unmerited love and forgiveness. It was an expensive lesson to learn of the character and the faithfulness of his father. But you and I know about some of those expensive lessons in life. It's often not until we are at life's extremity that we finally come to ourselves. We come into our right minds. We become brutally honest with ourselves about how badly things are really going. 
how our own ego has gotten in the way, how we've overestimated our capabilities. Fundamentally, we seem to persist in thinking we can live without God, without God's love, without God's guidance. We think we know a better way. It's the age-old problem. It's the human dilemma. We cannot live within the constraints of the garden. So we persist in the mistaken notion that we know a better way, and that now that we have the fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of knowledge, we have everything we need. No longer do we need to live in relationship with God. So I guess the question of this parable is how long will we keep running? When will we come into our right minds and return home to find what we're searching for? So this is a parable to help those in the first century understand that tax collectors and sinners and the faithful Pharisees are both regarded as children of God. It's less about trying to teach us a parenting technique. It's much more about this expansive, expensive, and extravagant love of the Almighty God, both for those who are near and for those who are far away. Like the Good Shepherd, God is searching for lost sheep, lost coins, and lost sons. But the difference between lost sons and daughters is that they have to want to be found. Unlike coins, unlike sheep, we participate in getting lost and we must participate in being found. So God's love for us is like that of the fathers in the parable. Whether we've been in a distant land or we serve the Lord with selfish intent and a bitter heart, wishing we didn't have to. We will find a loving embrace from a Heavenly Father who comes out to meet us where we are. We just have to want to be found. Now the story ends with one son, the elder son, the Presbyteros, doing all the right things but doing it for all the wrong reasons. And the younger son who returns to the place where he began and he finally understands the importance of the love of God, the love of his father. His searching is now over. He now lives thankfully in the embrace of the loving father and understands that everything in life is a gift from him. One son is bitter, one son is grateful. Initially, the hearts of both brothers were the same, according to Tim Keller. Both resented their father's authority. Each one rebelled. One did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. But both were lost sons. Keller describes it as the God of great expenditure and the reckless grace of God.
On one occasion, while we were in Israel, our Jewish guide, Eric, told us that if you take and analyze the DNA of Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, you'll find that they are very close to one another. If not brothers and sisters, they are at least cousins with one another. The question remains, will these brothers ever reconcile? One can only hope and pray. But it seems it will take an act of God and God's relentless love for these brothers to reconcile. And at the end of the parable, there's a celebration. It's a banquet. It's a feast of abundance. Whether we seek the way of moral conformity or the way of self-discovery, we too are invited to the banquet. We are invited to participate in God's reckless grace. This morning, as we woke, we heard the sound of God watering the garden with abundance. Rain from the heavens. The love of God is even more abundant than that which comes from the heavens above. It doesn't matter if you've wandered far from home or whether you have pointed your self-righteous finger at others. There is a place for you here at the Lord's table. This is merely a foretaste of things to come in the reign of Christ. So come and be found. Come, join the celebration. Thanks be to God. Amen.